We're going to be jumping back into the Old Testament. This is sort of, I'll say the Lord led me here. I don't know. You be the judge of that. But I certainly think the book of Daniel is always timely in every generation. And so I just felt like all that we're going through, it might be a really good time to take a peek at one of the most prophetically astounding books and most overlooked books in the Bible. So let's read Daniel 1, verse 8. It says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So I'll start with a confession. Years ago, I developed this belief that it would be impossible for a Christian, someone who was truly, truly dedicated to God, to serve anywhere in government in the United States of America. I just thought, you know, there's no way you could get elected and actually serve and hold on to your convictions. And then the Lord corrected me with two men. You know who the first one was? No, don't say Daniel. He's the second. The first one was Joseph. Joseph was a man who held on to convictions. He was a servant of God, a servant of mankind, and attained a high place of authority in the Egyptian government without compromising. And the second one was Daniel, an amazing young man who attained amazing things in a completely idolatrous pagan government and yet exuded influence there. So God corrected me with Joseph and Daniel and began to really change my heart in these matters. And I began to ask myself as I've been invested in reading Daniel and thinking about his life, how did he do it? How do you do it? How do you go through what he went through and hold on to your faith and hold on to your lifestyle and hold on to your convictions? Daniel's an amazing book as we look at not just Daniel, but his four friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've probably seen the Veggie Tales version of that. Rack Shack and Benny, isn't that what it's called, I think? So you're familiar with the stories. We're so familiar with Daniel in the lion's den. We're so familiar with the fiery furnace. You've probably even said, oh, the handwriting is on the wall and didn't even know it was from the Bible. It's from the book of Daniel. The handwriting's on the wall. Maybe some of you more astute students of the Bible are familiar with Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy that encompasses human history from God's standpoint. I mean, amazing, and we'll get there. The first six chapters of Daniel deal with his life experiences, and he lived basically his entire life in captivity. His life spans the entirety of the 70 years that his people were carried captive into Babylon. His teen years are spent in Judah, but then as a teenager, people guess between 15 to 18 years old, he's torn away from his family, carried a thousand miles away to Babylon, and that's where he lives the rest of his life. That's where he lives out and serves under four world leaders, four kings in that place. So the first six chapters, Daniel's life experiences in Babylon. The second six chapters, chapters 7 through 12, really deal with Daniel's dreams and visions. And some are very skeptical that this book was written when it says it was written. You know, this is dealing with things that happened 600 years before Christ, the 6th century B.C., starting in the 7th century, then into the 6th century B.C., 
By the way, Daniel was a contemporary of, I think about 4,000 miles away, a man named, can you guess it? Confucius. So Confucius and Daniel were contemporaries. They lived far apart, but they lived at the same time. And Daniel's prophecies are so specific and so accurate that many people believe there is no way Daniel could have written that during the 6th century. That it had to be written afterwards, reflecting backward on what had happened. But Daniel himself validates it as we go through. He'll say, I, Daniel, was this. And Daniel wrote this, not someone else writing and giving credit to a man named Daniel from the past. The second thing is Jesus agrees with Daniel, that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel as he talks in Matthew 24, I believe it is, about the abomination of desolation that is spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And the interesting thing about Daniel is Daniel was not a recognized national prophet like an Isaiah or a Jeremiah. Daniel was a young guy, again, a teenager, who gets carted away from his home to serve in the Babylonian kingdom. So it's a remarkable book. I think it has lots of instruction for us. So are you ready? You got chapter one in front of you. Daniel chapter one, I just entitled for myself, Convictions That Sustain. And you'll see why as we go through the bulk of the time today will be spent in the center section. The beginning will lead us up to that. And then the end, we'll see the results of that. But know that we'll spend the majority of our time thinking about one particular concept regarding conviction. And that's what we'll center on in chapter one. So verse one says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, we're roughly looking at 605 BC, the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So Nebuchadnezzar was the ruler, the king of Babylon under Babylonian Empire's golden age. Now, Babylon is about 60 miles from modern day, anybody know? Modern day Baghdad. So we're talking Iraq. And this was, as I said, the golden age. Nebuchadnezzar was the son of a military man, and they served in their city. The patron god was a god named Marduk. And if you went to Babylon, then you would see the temple of Marduk. Remember the Tower of Babel? That's where we get Babylon. It's connected to Babel. And the tower that was built unto the heavens, they weren't going, hmm, let's build a tower that reaches to the sky. Some people, we have that picture of this really, really, really super tall, like we're going to somehow build a tower into the clouds. That wasn't the point of Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, and their intention. The intention was to build a tower, a place of worship to the heavens. So the top of that ziggurat or that stepped pyramid, that's where the astrologers and astronomers would worship the stars and investigate those heavenly bodies and worship them. So that's connected to Babylon. Under Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon became the most powerful city-state in the region, and he was the greatest warrior king and ruler the ancient world knew. By the way, they found a damaged clay tablet in the 1800s, founded in Iraq, that is said to be the oldest map of the world. And it was discovered at the banks of the Euphrates River, published in 1899, and now it's at the British Museum. The interesting thing about it is the clay tablet dates back to 600 BC this time, and it depicts an early interpretation of the layout of the world. And guess what's right in the center of the world? Babylon. Every nation puts itself 
at the center of the map that they draw, including us. We are the center. It's called ethnocentricity. We are the center of the world. And at that time, in that place, under Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon truly was the center of the world from a worldly standpoint. What's the center of the world from God's standpoint? Jerusalem. You want to know what's going on in the world? Keep an eye on Jerusalem. But from a man's standpoint, it shifts all around. You know, it's China, it's America, it's Babylon, it's wherever. This study is going to stretch you guys. It's going to stretch your brain. So besieging Jerusalem, it's part of a three-phase domination and takeover. Jerusalem was sort of situated in a very strategic place. It was on the north-south trade route. So having Jerusalem for a king like Nebuchadnezzar would be a really instrumental part of his kingdom. So he besieges, and it's a three-phase process. This seems to be the first phase of that. Verse 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, which is, go back to Genesis 11, you'll see the same wording used. The land of Shinar is referenced to ancient Babylon, the plain of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So someone might interpret these events as God has failed. The God of the Jews is weak. When you look at Egypt and when you look at the plagues, it's a battle of the gods. You know, this nation had its gods that it served, and that nation had its gods, its local gods that it served. And when two nations battle, it was really a battle of the gods. The stronger God would cause their nation to win. So from a human standpoint, it'd be so easy to say, wow, the Babylonian gods must be really strong, must be stronger than the gods of Jerusalem, the God of Israel. But that's not how Daniel saw things. When Daniel writes, do you notice what he says? He says, this isn't a failure of the strength of our God. He doesn't say, oh, this really looks bad for our God. He says, this was actually our God's purpose. The Lord gave. It wasn't a failure of military power. It wasn't a failure of strategy. It was actually based on a whole reign of, in Israel, both north and south, of idolatry. And God said, well, you're so enamored by idols and by the way the world lives. How about you go spend some time there? So for 70 years, because of Israel's disobedience to God, because of their idolatry, because of their rebellion, God says, okay, I'm going to let you go and you're going to be taken away captive. Everything you had that was built when you trusted me under David and then started to dismantle under Solomon, it all gets destroyed, ultimately. The temple gets destroyed. Second Kings is a very sad book to watch what happens to God's people. So it seems that it's this God against God thing. But remember, behind all of what we're going to read is the greater battle that even goes back to Genesis 11. It's a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man and his autonomy. Remember what happens? What's at stake in the Tower of Babylon, Genesis 11? It's our technology. It's our architecture. It's our engineering. And ultimately, we are going to make a name for ourselves. We don't need God. We have technology. We have strength. We have military. We have medicine. We have everything we need. We do not need God. So you have this age-old battle between the kingdom and the rule and the reign of God versus what Babylon ultimately represents is the kingdom of the wisdom and the autonomy of man apart from God. 
So that's why Daniel's always relevant because that's still behind the scenes today. So the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, and he carries them away to Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brings the articles into the treasure house of his God. His God, he thinks, has won. That, by the way, it's about a thousand-mile journey. Now, it doesn't cart away all the people, just some. Look what he says in verse 3. And the king instructed Ashpenaz, if you're looking for a name for your son, it's my son Ashpenaz. And the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, his servants, to bring some of the children, some of the children of Israel, and some of the king's descendants. How do you guarantee a nation doesn't attack you? Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is a brilliant strategist. So he brings some of the king's descendants, because then if you attack the city, you potentially kill your own descendants, your own children in that. Some of the descendants and some of the nobles, young men, there were other motives too, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand. They had an aptitude for learning, who had ability to serve the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. So before we go any farther, I want to open up our discussion here. So is your mind ready to think? I want to discuss with you the idea of opinion versus conviction. And I woke up early Friday morning and just went outside picking blueberries off of our blueberry bushes and just thinking about Daniel. And I got to thinking about the difference if there was one. I'm pondering. That's a scary thought. Was there a difference between opinion and conviction? And then I began to ask people and do some research, ask a number of friends of mine, and I'll ask you, is there a difference between opinion and conviction? Okay, now don't answer out loud. If it's so, just think through it. What is the difference? And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But maybe to help you, let me ask you a couple questions. The question or the topic, the best flavor of ice cream is mint chocolate chip. Yeah? Is that an opinion or a conviction? That's a conviction. <laughs> ice cream flavor, opinion or conviction? Opinion? Conviction. All right, this is an opinion. Marijuana should be legalized. Opinion or conviction? No problem watching violent movies with profanity. Opinion or conviction? There's no problem with sex outside of marriage. Opinion or conviction? Masks should be worn in public during the pandemic. Opinion or conviction? Opinion from conversation and research seems to be linked to choice and preference. It's often external, impersonal, and doesn't necessarily require any action on my part. I can have the opinion that mint chip is the best ice cream, but until I have to make a choice, I can hold the opinion without having to act on it. So I can hold an opinion, but it may never actually require me to act on it. We live in a hyper-opinionated world, don't we? We listen to the news and we hear all kinds of opinion. Conviction seems to be a deeply, notice the word, deeply and internally firmly held position formed over time through experience, education, research, trust, culture, or discovery of what you deem to be true based on that trust. It often involves and usually seems to involve an issue of morals or values, and it changes, the conviction changes our personal behavior choices. 
and we even find it worthy of defense. Whereas opinion, you have yours, I have mine, I'm not going to argue with you about mint chip or chocolate peanut butter. Oh, I may argue with you about that. I don't know. But conviction is something much more deeply held. My first date with my wife, Helga. Now, some of you may know she helped start a chapter of the Humane Society when she lived in North Carolina. And one of our first dates, we went to dinner together and I ordered the veal. And I learned what my convictions should be. I got a 30-minute lecture on how these cows, these baby cows, these cute little brown-eyed baby cows are tied for their little lives to a little doghouse thing, and they're never allowed to go anywhere so that their meat stays tender, and it's cruel treatment of animals, and you shouldn't eat veal. I have not ordered veal in 25 years because for her it was a conviction. It involved the morality of treatment of animals. Even the Bible says a righteous man treats his animals well. So for her, that was conviction. And her sharing with me some of the information, I said, wow, maybe you're right. And now you're going to go home and go, wow, maybe we shouldn't have veal for dinner tonight, honey. Think about watching a documentary that brings to your world something you've not really thought of. I mean, opinion or conviction. Sweatshop workers for the fashion clothes industry that live in Bangladesh or India should be treated well, given a healthy environment to work in. Opinion or conviction. Maybe it's an opinion now, but if you went there and you saw, I mean, you even heard the news when the, the building collapsed and a thousand of them died. You might have had a stronger opinion, but maybe when you go and you see the conditions they work under, you experience, you see the reality of it, maybe that becomes a conviction about where you buy your clothes. Do you understand the difference between opinion and conviction? How many of you like Ravi Zacharias? So sad for us, happy for him that he passed away. Brilliant man. He said, Opinion is a position you hold with a varied degree of intensity that merely voices your preference. Conviction is rooted in conscience. If you toy with your opinions, you are going to be jostling with your preferences. But if you toy with a conviction, you have to deal with your conscience before you alter it. So from here, we will follow through thinking about Daniel and the other guys their choices, and their convictions. Why? Because I think Daniel's life is very instructive for us. Daniel, as a teenager, is uprooted from his home. He's taken into cultural isolation from his own culture. He's taken into a new culture. His life is in turmoil, separated from his family, separated from culture, given a whole new identity, a whole new culture, all of those things. And how does he thrive? And we say, well, God was with Daniel. And we say that as Christians, but what does that mean? We say, well, God is with Daniel. Yes, God is with me, and God is with you as Christians. But the question isn't whether God is with us. The question is whether we are with God, living under convictions that God can bless. What we're going to read now, I think, is the key to Daniel's life. And I think it's the key to every Christian's life, every servant of God. So I hope you find this illuminating, challenging to you. Are you listen carefully, are you merely opinionated or are you a person of conviction? There's a difference. Are you merely opinionated or are you a person of conviction? And what has formed those convictions? People have different convictions. Have your convictions changed? What caused the change? John 16 says the Holy Spirit's job 
is to convict, to bring conviction to the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. I have a whole different set of convictions because God found me and the Holy Spirit began to show me truth. And I believed it. And my convictions began to change. Things I felt before were right, I could no longer do in good conscience. See, my conscience was being changed. Before I was saved, my conscience was seared by the world. The world did not force me to make a decision in a lot of ways between moral and immoral, whatever feels right, whatever everybody else is doing, whatever the culture tells you is right. And when I met God or when God found me, brought a whole new system of truth into my life, and my life began to change because my convictions were changing because my conscience was being educated by the Word of God. Now, back to Daniel. Notice he said, whom they might teach, this is the purpose of getting these young guys, that they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Now, why doesn't he say the language and the literature of the Babylonians? Chaldeans are an ancient people, and you'll see this in chapter 2. The reference to Chaldeans is really a reference to an ancient religious priesthood that was highly educated in astrology and astronomy and served the kings, especially the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, as consultants and dream interpreters. So you'll see that in chapter 2. So it's more than just the language of Babylonians. There's your highly educated religious study of the stars and the ability to read the stars and interpret decisions and interpret those stars for what to do, how to live. And so that's what Daniel was going to be trained in. So we're at number one. Your convictions will be challenged by changes in culture. Your convictions will be challenged as culture change. And that's okay. Because sometimes when our convictions get challenged, we hold them more tightly. I go, yes, I still believe this is the truth. And the culture challenging it just confirms that more for me. It's good to evaluate your convictions. Jesus talks about wise and foolish builders, doesn't he? In the Sermon on the Mount, there's a wise builder and a foolish builder. What's the difference between the two? The wise builder digs deep and he builds his house on solid rock. So when the winds and the waves come, it stands firm. Person that knows the word and does it because there's conviction there. But the foolish builder builds on what? What kind of substratum? Sand. And what's unique about sand? It shifts, it moves, it's not stable. So when you build your convictions on culture, culture always shifts. Culture's different here than it is there. Has anybody lived long enough to see shifts in culture? Anybody lived long enough to see shifts in the Word of God? God's Word stood forever and will stand forever. So if I'm going to formulate convictions, this is my conviction. I'm going to formulate my convictions on the Word of God and not based on my culture because culture is going to shift. So your convictions will be challenged by the culture you live in. Daniel was going to be exposed to a radical cultural reprogramming. They were going to grab the best and the brightest and dissolve every connection to God, to their God, to their family, and to Jewish culture as a teenager. We're going to educate and indoctrinate in the Babylonian culture of false gods and Babylonian life. And in doing this, by taking the best and the brightest from Israel... I remember being in Ukraine and talking to some of these young girls who were there in the Ukrainian church. They couldn't get visas to travel to the United States. Do you know why? 
because they didn't want to lose any of the best and brightest that would come here, get married, and settle down here. Nations that are weaker want to hold on to their best and brightest kids. Matter of fact, just in the news now, talking about the United States shutting down some of the work visas around the world, so some of the tech people that live in India aren't going to be able to come into the States. And India is saying, well, that's kind of good for us. We get to keep our best and our brightest. So you grab the best and the brightest, you indoctrinate them in the culture, and then you make them your own. And Babylon, again, is the epitome of man-centered life of pride. So here's Daniel, raised to know God. Now the world is encroaching on his life and challenging to change his culture and to change his way of thinking through education and indoctrination. To take away God from education, and that's how we begin. How did we get here? Without God, it was evolution. And I won't go into all the problems with that, how unscientific that is, but that's another time, another story. Well, what's our purpose in life? Make money. What's true? Whatever you want. What happens when we die? Nothing. You came from nothing, you'll be nothing. There's nothing happens when you die. This is, again, education without God puts man at the center of everything. Did you know that many of the best universities in America started as theological training schools and now are bastions of teaching humanism and life apart from God? Harvard was named after a Christian minister. Yale was started by a clergyman. And Princeton's first-year class was taught by Reverend Jonathan Dickinson. Princeton's crest still says in Latin, I'm going to butcher this, Dei sub numine viget, which is in Latin, under God she flourishes. That's still on Princeton's crest. Evangelist, philosopher, pastor, and preacher Jonathan Edwards was the one-time president of Princeton. But we find Romans 1 and Paul's word to the Romans that exchanging the truth of God for the lie, they worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator God. Verse 5 says, The king appointed for them these young men that were the best of the best, the best and the brightest that were taken. The king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies, and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Number two, if you won't change your convictions, given a choice, you might compromise. If I can't get you to change your conviction, given the right circumstances, I might be able to get you to compromise. See, if the world, if the world culture can't get you to change, they can certainly give you enough temptation to compromise which may be exactly why the church of today is so weak. That's an opinion. You can have your convictions, you Christians, you God people. Just don't live by them. We're okay with you saying it, but just don't live it. See, here are some appealing choices. The king's delicacies. Now, that's just not food like the king ate. That is the king's food. Now, being fat in ancient history is considered a blessing. And I think it's in Isaiah 55, Delight yourself in fatness. Because for most of human history, the only people that could even be fat were the wealthy and the kings. They were the only ones who could have enough food to actually be fat. Everybody else was getting by on a meager subsistence. So you all live like kings and queens relative to most of the nations in human history, except for the elite and the kings. So now Daniel, marching a thousand miles, lands in Babylon, this whole new culture. He's got his convictions, and they parade in front of him. It's like being at the buffet on a cruise. How many of you know 
going on a cruise is a bad time to fast and be on a diet. Oh, we're on a cruise next week. I think I'll diet. No way. I'm indulging because I can't see it and not eat it. Amen? Oh, man. But notice the king's wine, the delicacies. For three years, he's going to live in this sort of collegiate environment with these other Jewish kids that have been taken captive, and they're going to be trained in this training, Babylonian cultural training school. But notice that the end goal, we just want to show Daniel and his friends how much we love them and care for them. What's the end goal? That at the end, they might serve before the king. The end goal of getting them to compromise was service with loyalty. Don't serve your God. Serve this other kingdom. Speaks a lot to our own day, doesn't it? Speaks a lot to our own country. Speaks a lot to our own lives and families. The end goal of Satan, ultimately behind all this, you don't have to worship him. Just compromise on who you are and how you live and confuse the world because you say one thing and you live another. And in the end, just like Satan tempted Jesus, just worship me. You don't have to say it, just do it. And be loyal to me and to my ways, the ways of the world, the ways of a godless, man-centered culture. And that's the end goal. I'll give you all the things you felt like God was withholding from you. You can indulge in my kingdom. You can indulge. But ultimately, you're going to end up in servitude to darkness. The food that Daniel was being offered was anything but free. Verse 6 is now from among those of the sons of Judah. So there were more. This is just a few, four, where Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, to them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. It sounds like a superhero. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So notice the names of the Jewish boys. Just look at the Jewish names. They all contain two little root words, El or Yah. Both words, roots that indicate God. Daniel is God is my judge. And Daniel knew that. God is my judge. And then the other boys, they have either Yah, which is short for Yahweh. Yahweh is, or favored by Yahweh, or El. But then when they change the names, all the new names give a reference to, in their roots, the Babylonian deities. So there was a time when names actually meant something. Now it's like, I just want something cool that people can remember is different. See, our individualistic society says, I want my name to represent my individual identity. So I want a name that no one else has. So I'm going to pick a word and spell it backwards and add some letters and change some things. And I'm going to develop all kinds of names. It represents our individual, a desire for individuality. So names are meaningful. Historically, names are meaningful. In Iceland, your last name is your father's first name plus the word son or daughter. So it makes their phone book really confusing. In China, when you introduce yourself, you introduce yourself last name first. When Bruce Jenner went through his transgender thing, his reassignment, why did he bother to change his name? Could it just still be Bruce Jenner, just in a woman's body? But it's so important because of identity, he felt like he's now Caitlin. What about Cassius Clay? Anybody know who Cassius Clay is? A man named Cassius Clay, a boxer named Cassius Clay, affiliates with Islam and changes his name to represent the affiliation with a new religion, new identity. He becomes Muhammad Ali. 
Now, I'm going to give you one quote, and then we'll move on. Sinclair Ferguson, wonderful Christian theologian and thinker, in his commentary on Daniel for this verse, this is what he said. Listen very carefully. This incident illustrates for us an important principle, the way we think about God, ourselves, others, and the world determines the way we live. If Nebuchadnezzar could only change these men to think like Babylonians, then they would live like Babylonians. Conversely, so as long as they thought of themselves as the Lord's, they would live as his servants, even in Babylon. You see, the strength of Daniel was in his identity and his beliefs, not in his location. Take a young person, send them off to college. You think you're going to protect them by forcing them to live obediently under your rules, but never giving them a chance and challenge them to develop their own convictions. And then you set them free with all the king's delicacies and all the wine and all the keg parties, and you watch kids crumble because they haven't taken time. And I'm saying this not to parents, but to the young people that are watching or listening You have to form your convictions because your convictions will determine your life. If you don't have convictions or they're not strong, then anything will go. You will end up swaying to the opinions and convictions of those people around you and what they think you should do, wanting to please them ultimately, the world. And here's the strength of Daniel. Look at verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. I mean, what kind of position is Daniel in to bargain? He's a captive, and now he's going to make this request of the chief of the eunuchs because he has a conviction. Oh, could you imagine the razzing he would get? Hey, everybody, look at the little Jewish boy and his convictions. Oh, he doesn't want to drink the wine. He doesn't want to eat the food. That would make most people, even grown people, crumble. The shame of being different would make me cave in a minute. But not Daniel. Why not? See, number three, Daniel's life was shaped by deep conviction and not by his circumstances. Too many people's lives are shaped by response to circumstance. Swaying this way and that way, tossed to and fro by every event. People lose their minds not Daniel. Can we admit Daniel's in a tough spot? You want to talk about a crisis situation for a young man. Daniel's there. He understands difficulty, and yet he holds fast because his life was shaped by conviction and not circumstance. He purposed in his heart. He set in his heart. Before it ever happened, he had determined, he knew before he ever reached Babylon on that thousand miles, he went over and over again in his mind, I still trust the Lord. I know this looks bad, but I understand what God is doing. And he'll reflect on that over the 70 years while he's in Babylon. He had set in his heart, his relationship with God was set in his heart. And his convictions were set in his heart. And notice his convictions, number four, his convictions were personal. He purposed in his heart. It was for him. You can't force your convictions on someone else. Isn't that one of the challenges we face in our day? I have the conviction, and I think you should have my conviction too. And if you don't have it, I'm going to force you to. You can't have convictions for other people. The real challenge, the real power, is to live your own convictions. That's hard enough in itself. I believe something, and I'm actually living what I believe. So what I hope people say about Calvary Chapel is not just that we teach the whole Bible, but that we actually believe it. So much so that we live in a way consistent. So Daniel's convictions were personal 
And we recognize people have different convictions. This is what Romans 14, 15 is about. What do we do in the body of Christ when we have one conviction and another person has a different conviction? This is where the whole idea of not stumbling someone, not causing someone to violate what they feel is a deep conviction for themselves. Have to be sensitive to other people's convictions. Yes, even in the church. How many of you find it is an opinion or conviction that people should get dressed up when they go to church? There's a lot of people that would say, that's a conviction. Like, I grew up that way. It's a conviction handed me by my church culture. And I believe it's firmly held that people should get dressed up. We have a different kind of culture here, don't we? But we're patient and sensitive because they have that conviction. They came by it, honestly, in their way, and I can't change that. We can talk about it. So Daniel's convictions were personal, And it was conviction about purity. See, he said, I'm not going to defile myself with the portion of the king's delicacies or with the wine. So Daniel felt that it was personally making him dirty or violating his deep conviction about purity to do that thing, to partake of that. Now, it could be because of the strict dietary laws that he grew up with. He doesn't know is this meat being probably sacrificed to idols. That would have been prohibited. And the meat was probably not prepared in a kosher way, not just the kind of meat that was served, but the way it was even prepared, that there wouldn't be any blood in it. So rather than chance it, Daniel said, you know what, I can't. My conscience won't allow me to eat that meat because I don't know where it's come from. I don't know how it was prepared. I don't want to displease God. Oh, man. See, purity and purifying, again, to not defile is to not pollute, to sully, or to mar. But how many of us are careless with our own bodies? I'm not talking about food. Not necessarily. Talking about even, Paul would say, regarding sexuality. There are bodies, the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. How about the willingness to pollute your mind? When we take in so little of the Bible and so much of the world, God's people, the world offers us more and more and more and more, and we suck it in and suck it in and suck it in. But not Daniel. I'm not judging I'm with you guys. That's challenging me. I had to study this for a week. It challenges me. It could be because of that, but it also could be because he understood that table fellowship with the king would mean that he was forging an allegiance with the king. What fellowship, Paul says, has light with darkness. And Daniel recognized that if I sit around the table with the king's delicacies and eat what he's eating, I become one with him. And Daniel did not want to become one with the kingdom of Babylon. You cannot serve two masters. Cannot serve two masters. But we know Daniel, he held it deeply enough that he said, this is my conviction. So he makes a request. Look at verse 9. Now God, verse 9, had brought Daniel into the favor and the goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. That's a miracle. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So he communicates about his convictions with the chief of the eunuchs. And that's an important thing. You've got to be able to communicate what your conviction is and why. This is not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of my own personal purity. Young ladies dating young men, you may have to communicate your conviction. Is that I believe if we go farther than this, it violates my purity. And I want to save that for my husband. So please honor my conviction. And that's what Daniel makes the request. And now chief of the eunuchs comes back and said, man, if you don't eat this stuff, you're going to look mangy and horrible. 
and I'm going to lose my jobs on the line. But notice the same God that was working judgment against his nation was also working mercy and compassion for Daniel in captivity. Just because Daniel was carted away captive doesn't mean God is at rest and God is not involved. The word goodwill means tender love or compassion. In Babylon, that's kind of a rare, miraculous kind of thing. So they have this conversation, he and Daniel, verse 11. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had said over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacy. So examine both parties. It's like a a test is going on here, an experiment. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So we consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. Notice another thing. Daniel's conviction was persuasive. Notice all the wording is plural. Daniel purposes in his heart to do this thing, but all of a sudden, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are involved. I'm sure there were plenty of young people that were indulging their appetites going, yeah, king's delicacies, I'm diving in. I never had this stuff at home. Then Daniel, and then I can imagine the huddle between Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as the food comes out and Daniel's like, yeah, no, I can't touch it. Not doing it. They all began to go, ah, you know the feeling, right? And they have a huddle and they go, you know what? I think he's right. And Daniel's passion And Daniel's conviction, it doesn't convince everybody, but it convinces three other real important guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So Daniel's conviction is passively persuasive. He didn't force it on them, at least not that we know of, but I believe they came by it passively. Notice also, number six, Daniel was patient with people who didn't have the same convictions. Let's be honest, Christians can be obnoxious and demanding. Is that true? How's Daniel going to demand anything anyway? He's a captive. So Daniel begins to reveal his diplomacy, even here in dealing with his convictions. Ravi Zacharias, in the finishing of his earlier quote, he said, a conviction that is not undergirded by love will make the possessors of them obnoxious. I like that. Is Daniel obnoxious? He's quite reasonable. He says to them, look, let's just do a test. And then we'll examine and we'll see. And at the end, you see fit and that's how you deal with your servant. Daniel trusted God. And so it made him reasonable to know that his convictions would be ones that would bring blessing. They're rooted in love for God, which are rooted in love for people and a desire for purity. His conviction was with reasonableness. I believe people see the beauty of your conviction in your life. Paul talks to Titus and says that we adorn the gospel of God. We put it on like clothing, and people go, wow, your God is beautiful. Imagine the temptation as they roll out the delicacies, and Daniel's got broccoli and a glass of water. You think he ever went, oh, man, is it too late? Is it too late to change my mind, you know? Uh, At least seltzer water, maybe, some flavor. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in the flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. This is not a sermon on the power of vegetarianism. This is the work of God. Thus the steward took away their portion of the delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. One thing I'm going to say is, again, what I like about Daniel is number eight. His conviction involved full commitment. He was ready to stand by it even when it got tough. 
but I don't know that Daniel ever begrudged it. I don't know. But now they're going to take away all that good food for the next three years, and Daniel's going to be living by his conviction. Do you think he ever experienced regret? No? No? We don't know. Just a question to ask about. Daniel's a real person, and so I don't know if he ever experienced regret or not. But what I do want to say, too, is that our appearance but relative to other people, has way more to do with more than just the food we eat. I mean, food, diet is important for our lives, but stress, living based on lies, living in darkness. You ever see those posters? They put the picture up of the person who's convicted of some kind of crime, and they look terrible. Like living in darkness takes years off your life. Living in sin takes years off your life. Maybe part of Daniel's appearance had to do with just the peace that he experienced from exercising his convictions before God. Maybe. What would have happened if Daniel was forced by the eunuchs to oppose his conviction? We don't know. Good question, though. Verse 17, as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill and all literature and wisdom. Who gave it to them? God gave it to them. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, more so than any education they could have gotten in Babylon. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You can't know nothing until you know we were created, that God is, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And to recognize that he is your creator, you can't even understand anything in the world until you get that fact straight. We didn't come from nowhere. Now, at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they serve before the king. And in all the matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So all of Daniel's perspective, his heart, his convictions about God, his understanding of the world because of what God was doing in his life made him 10 times wiser than those that were educated in the Babylonian system. And Daniel serves under four kings. Did you know he was probably in his 80s when he was thrown to the lions? He's not that little teenage guy you see on the, in the illustrations. He's probably in his 80s when he gets thrown to the lions. Thank you for hanging with me and being gracious. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would just take and use this discussion of conscience to challenge our lives, to challenge our own convictions and how we live, that we would live based on what we really believe is true, who we are and how we think how we see ourselves and the world around us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. All God's people said, amen, amen.